everyone is going through something and asking for help can be really scary. I think when somebody comes into a psychiatrist, it's important for them to know that they've been heard and that the person helping them make decisions possibly about medications understands the whole story. That clip you just heard was from Dr. Josephine McNary. Dr. McNary and I spent some time today answering common medication questions that individuals with borderline personality disorder often have about psychiatry and medications. Dr. McNary is a board-certified general psychiatrist working with a variety of patients in her outpatient practice in California, Cal Psychiatry. She specializes in medication management and is particularly interested in the use of complementary medicine for mood and anxiety disorders. Passionate about developing her medical practice and technique, Dr. McNary has completed specialty fellowship training in, bo in both psycho-oncology and mood disorders. She served as a staff psychiatrist at the UCLA Sims Mann Center for Integrative Oncology from 2011 to 2015 and also completed a fellowship at the UCLA Mood Disorders Clinic, which specializes in treatment-resistant mood disorders. Josephine was gracious and willing to come on the podcast today to answer your questions about medication. She also has a podcast called Mind Stories, so you definitely want to check that out on Apple and anywhere you can hear a podcast. So let's listen in to hear what Dr. McNary has said about medications and BPD. I'm Rose Skeeters, host of From Borderline to Beautiful, a show about hope and recovery for BPD. Welcome to another episode of From Borderline to Beautiful. Today I have special guest on the show. She's a psychiatrist out of California. Her name is Josephine, and I'm just going to have her introduce herself to you guys. Hi, Josephine. Thank you for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. I, I, I love listening to your show, and so I'm honored to be a guest. Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about so, you? Yeah. Yes. So I'm happy to. So I'm a general adult psychiatrist. Um, so I have a private practice uh, in California, and I also do some inpatient work um, on the inpatient psychiatric unit at UCLA um, and do some work with consults uh, through UCLA as well. Very great. What areas do you serve in California? I know we have a lot of California listeners. Right. So I guess with telepsychiatry, it kind of has opened up California to kind of to the whole state. Um, but during non-COVID times, we have offices um, mainly in Los Angeles, but we also go down to the South Bay, which is in Hermosa Beach, and then out to downtown LA, and then all the way up north to Santa Barbara at this point. Wow, that's cool. Isn't it amazing how telepsychiatry and telehealth has just, I don't know, kind of created a, a broader audience that you can serve more people? Yes. No, I, I, I totally agree. It, it's kind of allowed us to be able to really provide services to a broader geographic um, area. Uh, but at the same time, I'm very curious to see what's going to happen when life goes back to normal, because there, I think there still will be that need for you to, for people to want to see their physicians in person. Oh, absolutely. There's something about being in person, especially going to a psychiatrist or a, you know, a therapy session in person 
you know, there's that connection yeah. that, that people miss for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, let's jump yeah. right in to the questions I have. We're going to do a Q&A format and I have some questions from listeners and just some questions of my own to ask Josephine. So question number one, why are psychiatrists, in your professional opinion or clinical opinion, reluctant to diagnose people with borderline personality disorder? Okay. So that's a good question mm-hmm. because I, I, and I'm not surprised that you're, ans- that you're asking this question. Um, so in my clinical experience um, with working with people with that diagnosis, um, I mean, I think when I approach a case, of course, I want to be very honest about the diagnosis that I'm thinking of, because obviously that's going to be to the individual's best interest for me to share that as kind of this um, diagnostic understanding of uh, what I have with the case, basically, right? Mm-hmm. So it would be a benefit to be able to accurately um, as, as accurately as I possibly can. I mean, a lot of times when you see a person, it's a working diagnosis. So you listen to the diet, you listen to the history, you listen to the current symptoms, and you kind of think, okay, well, what really does this sound like? What what are these patterns that this person is talking about? What box does that really fit into in terms of diagnosis? And so, I think that serves a few good, a few purposes. One, it kind of allows someone to understand, okay, this is how I understand my diagnosis. Um, I'm not the only person experiencing these cluster of symptoms. But in terms of another benefit is this idea of, but what, okay, if we are able to identify what the most likely diagnosis is, then we're able to then be able to kind of create a roadmap for treatment. And I think that's incredibly important. So I'm not answering your question yet. Um, I think the reluctance on the kind of any mental health provider in terms of thinking about the diagnosis and diagnosing borderline personality disorder is one, you want to be sure, right? And so you, I mean, it's not, it's not always that you're a psychiatrist just doesn't ever diagnose borderline personality disorder. Maybe it is that they just want to gather a bit more data and get a little bit of more understanding of the individual before really moving forward with that diagnosis. So sometimes it's just about, you know, I need to be more sure myself before I kind of embark on that discussion about that diagnosis. Um, And there are some people, and I mean, the other idea that maybe makes psychiatrists a little bit reluctant is people already know that word and there's kind of an, a lot of clients or patients might have a negative connotation to that word so they're they might get very offended right if you bring that up even if it's in your their best interest from if the psychiatrist is like but I want them to know what I'm thinking um you know in some cases you know the the patient becomes very angry with your kind of assessment of them and you have to kind of weigh the costs and benefits, right? So would it be to the person's best interest to know how I'm thinking about this diagnosis right now or not, right? right. And, you know, sometimes we make the call, you know, maybe it's not the right time at this point to to tell them. With that said, I think in general, though, psychiatrists, or I do, try to err on the side of being very honest and open with their patients because why not? I mean, that's why they come to you. They People come to you wanting 
your expertise and evaluation of kind of how they think about the symptoms. But I think there are certain cases where maybe it actually might be a little harmful in the beginning when you don't have that connection with the person just yet. Yeah, that makes sense. And I also think that, you know, a lot of the people who are, you know, you guys out there listening to the podcast, you're the group of people, I hope, that are looking for answers. Not everyone coming into the office of a psychiatrist is going to be looking for answers. They're just looking for something. So if you go into the, you know, imagine you're in your psychiatry office or psychiatrist's office, excuse me, and you don't know that you have borderline personality disorder, the likelihood if you have the rage associated with it that you have sort of an outburst or a tantrum or a negative reaction is high. And unfortunately, I think if we look at the population as a whole, a lot of psychiatrists, a lot of clients, you know, patients have had that anger reaction. So maybe you wouldn't because that would give you this sense of like confirmation or validation but many people have. So I think it just comes down to human bias in, in a lot of in a lot of ways. And we have to give forgiveness and grace to all people, even when other people make assumptions about how we're gonna react, right? And then maybe try to find a, a psychiatrist like Josephine, who is more honest and open. I mean, what do you think about that? Like, do you think that they should investigate different people, different doctors, so they can find the person that's going to be honest with them if they feel like the doctor is withholding and they're looking for that answer? Of course, right? So, I mean, I know, I hope that, you know, people who, I would hope that someone who has or is wondering about, about borderline personality disorder not only has a psychiatrist, but they have a therapist that they feel very connected to. And I would say, I mean, you maybe won't see the psychiatrist quite as often as you would your therapist. And I think that's very reasonable because a lot, you need to see your therapist a lot more frequently to really get that work done. Um, but it's the same idea, right? You want to feel comfortable with any provider you see, even if you see your psychiatrist once a month or every three months, you want that person to be someone that you feel comfortable disclosing information or concerns to. And I think the also important thing about your relationship with your psychiatrist is you understand that that psychiatrist is part of your team and wants the best for you. Um, And the hope is that that psychiatrist wants to talk to your other providers to kind of allow for kind of a group to to really kind of take hold to allow you a really good foundation to help you move forward. Absolutely. Great points. And I, I've talked about this before when we talk about somebody had asked, asked the question of how do you choose a therapist? And I said, it's like anything else, you know, you're paying for a service or your insurance company is paying for a service. It's still a service. We're service providers. So if you come to me and you don't like me, I hope that you don't come back and see me again. I think with mental health, People feel like they're stuck with that doctor. If you don't feel comfortable, it's, it is your right, within reason, within reason, it is your right to find a new person if you truly feel like that's the best path for you. So thank you. All right, yeah. let's go. Well, I mean, oh. that's true. Can I say yeah. one thing? I mean, sure. sometimes it's hard to find a psychiatrist, so I get that there's a struggle sometimes. It's like, but I only have this option, and, and I think that's a dilemma, and that's difficult, right, if you don't have any other option. And that maybe comes into thinking about, well, how do you communicate better with that psychiatrist to make sure they know that you need to get your needs met in a different way? 
That is an awesome point. You're right, especially in other countries. Like you know, if, if in Canada you only are got you are only given one psychiatrist, or even in the U.S. there is a shortage shortage for sure. So how do you? How would you suggest someone then communicates with their psychiatrist if they have a disagreement? What's a good way that you feel like is, you know, you've you've had it done before maybe. You know, that's a tough question. I think because. It so depends, right, on the dynamic between the two of you and, and the history and the openness of your psychiatrist. I mean, I will say just, just I can only comment on my experience with people. Um, the best outcomes I've had is when is when someone I'm working with is honest, right? Yeah. And people say, well, you know, I feel bad bringing this up. And I, I love hearing that because I like to say, you know, I, you shouldn't feel bad bringing this up. You should bring up anything that you need to in this, in, in my time with you. And so I welcome that. And, you know, I think that's part of also just kind of a, a practice of your life with interactions with other people, right? I mean, there are times in life where you are going to have to bring up hard things and to be able to practice that with someone who's safe, which I hope is your mental health provider, therapist, or psychiatrist, that's a good practice. And to try to figure out how to do that in a way that actually is productive and not counterproductive too. Right, exactly. Not accusatory, more, you know, assertive. And that's something you can work with your therapist on if you do have a team, which is important for recovery. So you talk to your therapist or your coach about how to communicate more effectively to your psychiatrist. And the hope is those people are all communicating with each other so they can have open dialogues about how to best support you. Right? Right. And that does lead us into the second question, which is, you know, someone asked, why are psychiatrist appointments so short? And how will my psychiatrist know anything about me if they're only giving me a couple minutes and pushing me out the door? Right. So that I'm glad I'm glad that question is brought up because I it's clearly a concern that people have. Um, so. I, I guess I'll first answer it kind of broadly in terms of you know, there are different kinds of psychiatrists, right? There are psychiatrists that you see through insurance and there are psychiatrists that you might see outside of insurance, right? And so if you think about the model of insurance or Kaiser, right? It's like, they've got to see a lot of people. They have a lot of people moving through those offices, right? And so it is sometimes, I mean, I think, you know, short visits probably, you know, it depends. It depends how long you've known the person, but um, sometimes that there's no other option. It's just, an economic thing in terms of, you know, how the hospital system or insurance system states what you're allowed. And so, you know, unfortunately, that's not the fault of the psychiatrist. It's just a fault of the system and you kind of figure out ways to make it work. Um, other private psychiatrists, which I'm a private psychiatrist, um, don't, aren't constrained by kind of insurance, um, protocols, right, and restrictions. Um, so my follow-up visits, typically, I give about 30 minutes. And I find that to be a reasonable amount of time, um, especially because most of the people I see also have a therapist, and I'm in touch with the therapist. And so, um, you know, there is a little bit of outside communication out with 
I have releases. Um, if I have releases, you know, to talk to therapists and I tend to have pretty good relationships with those therapists. And so I, I know that they will let me know if there's something of concern that comes up between appointments mm -hmm. and I take care of it in real time. Um, and so kind of knowing that there's a little bit more of just, I'm not just floating out there asking my client or patient questions. Um, I'm, we kind of exist as a, a system, right? Um, and so, you know, I think it, it depends. I mean, there are some cases where, yeah, I mean, 30 minutes is not enough. Um, and in initial visits are much longer than that. I'm talking about follow-up visits. Um, so I don't know. I kind of went around the question a little bit, but it's kind of the best that I, answer I have. No, that's a great answer. It's, it's the difference between private pay and insurance. Because, you know, I think what, what's important to understand when you're not a provider and you're just going to see a clinician, it's a difficult concept to have, especially, you know, as you're working through BPD, you're working through cognitive empathy, right? And how to have cognitive empathy and to look at people in the context of their lives. So, you know, I think what you're saying is really take a look at what you're getting for what your, what your provider, excuse me, is going through when they have to go to, through insurance. And that's one of the biggest reasons why I, as a clinician, don't take insurance. Because when you go through insurance companies, there are certain rules that you have to follow. And unfortunately, in, in, that sort of financial system, it doesn't allow a lot of room for us to take care of our clients the way we want to. So if you can, not everybody can, and we understand that, we'll get there in a minute, but if you can, going the private pay route, you're gonna feel heard a bit more. Well, the likelihood that you feel heard a bit more is higher because 30 minutes is a very reasonable amount of time. Now, I know the individual that wrote to me about this was saying their appointments are 10 or 15 minutes. So imagine what you'd get done in double that time, right? And, and you have a clinician at the same time. So there's that. Now, if you don't have access to or can't afford private pay for a psychiatrist, this goes back to communication. You have to be able to have these skills or learn these skills of how to communicate with, psych with your psychiatrist and say, I don't feel heard by you. Because even in 10 minutes, there should be this workaround to be able to say, you're not listening to me. Let's stop. I'll get out my most important points. And then I want you to respond and we can have this kind of back and forth, right? Right. Yeah. And this is loosely related, but um, I, the way I, I mean, I love to work this way. I have um, therapists that know when their clients' follow ups are with me. And a few days before, they give me a quick call and they just give me an update. And so it actually allows the visit to go quite smoothly because not only do I have the patient sitting in front of me to giving me a report, I also have information from somebody who is another mental health professional who's been following them much more regularly um, with some really good data that kind of allows me to kind of shape how I'm looking at things. So um, I think the other discussion is, you know, how your expectations of how your therapist or psychologist might be able to kind of help give information as well. That's a really good point. Thank you for that. I like that. All right, so let's go on to the next question. What medications are, do you feel like are helpful for B? First of all, is there a medication that can quote unquote cure borderline personality disorder? No. What medications- not, unfortunately. That's right, unfortunately not. So what medications are helpful um, just in general, I know it's not a very uh, 
specific question? No, that's actually a really easy question for me, <laughs> for me to answer because it's general, but at the same time, it, it, there's a pretty simple answer. So, okay, there's not a pill for borderline personality disorder because borderline personality disorder is a cluster of different symptoms that kind of are put together and create this diagnosis. And it looks so different in one person and then versus the next, right? And so it's really a model of what the symptoms are and then what we have to treat those symptoms. And so just because there's not a pill for borderline personality disorder doesn't mean it's not treatable, right? And so I think that's a really important distinction. It's not, it's not a, it's not, we're not defeated in terms of being able to treat it. We can effectively treat a lot of these symptoms to the point of, I mean, almost resolution with some of the medications we have. So I'll kind of start with the most typical medications that we use. So um, if someone's coming in saying, I feel really depressed, right? Or I feel pretty anxious then I'm going to give them medications that I would use for someone who has depression or has anxiety because that can exist in someone with borderline personality disorder. There's a lot of overlap, right? Someone who's borderline could also have major depression. They could also have generalized anxiety. Um, and the typical medications in general that we use for those sorts of things um, are things like the SSRIs, so Lexapro, Zoloft, Prozac, the, that, that class of medications. Um, it is a little bit tricky, though, because there's also what we call the mood stabilizers. And sometimes people, you know, there might be reasons why you might not want to use an SSRI. It actually could make you more activated, more impulsive. And so that's why it's really important to have a psychiatrist who you know talk to you about kind of the, you know, the intricacies of kind of the pros and cons of these medications. But I'm just talking about typically kind of straight anxiety, straight depression. We think about the SSRIs. Um, SSRIs could also be helpful for irritability and reactivity in some people. So that might be a reason why you might want to use those. And then the other medications are kind of the mood stabilizers. So a lot of people with borderline, not everyone, but a lot are on something called the Mictal. And Lamictal is traditionally a mood stabilizer, meaning it's for people who have kind of more of a bipolar spectrum disorder picture. But I will say, you know, even if someone doesn't have a bipolar disorder, we sometimes use them for irritability and reactivity. It can also be helpful. Um, so it's sometimes used for that. Um, we sometimes use other medications like Abilify or Seroquel. Those are traditionally called the antipsychotic kind of second generation antipsychotic medication. Um, and, you know, those could be used for a few different things. Um, also could be used for irritability, reactivity, depression, anxiety. So I guess what I'm trying to say is it's, it's, it's kind of a simple answer because we're like, we have these different classes that we can use. And sometimes for depression or irritability, we might decide to use an SSRI, but in other people, we might think a mood stabilizer might be more beneficial. So it kind of depends on the case, but there are things out there that could be very helpful. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So just along those lines, I think a lot of people, and I talk about this as well, a lot of people don't react well when they're on um, the antipsychotic class of drugs. And I'm not sure if that's because they're sort of having these negative reactions to them, like, you know, not being a psychiatrist. I just look at this, like, sort of population of people and I'm getting that information. And, or if it's because of aggressive polypharmacy. So many individuals that reach out to me, they're not just on a Seroquel. It's, you know, a Seroquel, a Trazodone, a Prozac, a Buspar, uh, you know, um, 
five ants. So like something like that, mm -hmm. for example. So can right. you just talk a little bit about the dangers of aggressive polypharmacy and just, you know, why that would not be good to stay on that long term? Yeah, that kind of thing. Right. I mean, with any medication, there are side effects, right? And so the second generation antipsychotics have a lot of side effects. And so, you know, we... I would hope that with your psychiatrist, there's a lot of discussion before going on them, the risks and benefits, what you would expect to see, what your desired outcome is. Um, and I get how polypharmacy can happen, right? You start someone on something, usually something kind of mild, you maybe notice a little bit of an improvement, you go up, you get to the highest dose, and you're like, oh, maybe there's some improvement. I don't want to take it away, but we still need more, right? We need more of an effect. And then you add something else. Then you go up on that and you're like, okay, you're maybe a little bit better, but we still need more help. And so you kind of keep piling them on. Um, and I think it's really tricky because as a psychiatrist, you want people to do better and you think, okay, I mean, the goal of giving someone a medication is to improve their quality of life, right? And it's hard sometimes to really determine how helpful something really is, right? Because say someone gets a little bit better, is that because of the medication or is that because of some positive life changes that they've made? Is that because they've really been involved in therapy and they've been really making some good strides with that? Um, and so, you know, Polypharmacy is so tricky, but I think it really comes down to this idea of really understanding why you're why you're adding something and what your expectation is with it. And if you get to the point where you're like, you know, I actually don't think I've gotten a lot of benefit from this medication, you know, that ha I mean, that's an important discussion to have with your psychiatrist. And there's no test to determine if something is beneficial or not with most medications, right? It's more of kind of a, a history. And I think sometimes with people, it's really hard to figure out, okay, did they derive benefit or not? And sometimes that's where bringing the therapist in to talk about, okay, well, not physically bringing them in, but talking to them, okay, have you seen benefit? What have you seen different on this medication? Asking family members to bring in their input, you know, has this person, a lot of times I have, I put people, if I have someone who's borderline, there's a lot of need to take a medication to help with reactivity or irritability, right? And it's interesting, it can go both ways. Sometimes someone comes in after a month or so and they say, you know, I'm not quite sure if I've really noticed that much. And I say, well, what did your partner say? And they say, oh, he says I'm so much better. I mean, that's important, right? That's an important piece of data, right? Um, or it can go the other way. Someone says, yeah, I'm doing so much better. And then their partner comes in and she's like, oh no, like things have not really changed much at all, right? Um, and so I think it's really tricky, but it's so important to pull in information, not just from the individual, but people they trust too. That's such a good point. And you know, it's, I think, it could be partly in part the psychiatrist wanting the person to get better, but it could also be our own reporting, right? So you remember we talked about the people with BPD having this hyperbolic um, presentation and very hypersensitive. So if you go week after week or, you know, every other week to your psychiatrist and you say, I'm not better, I'm not better, I'm not better, the psychiatrist is in the helping profession. So that person, my hope is that that person really wants to help you. And that is what you're going to see them for is medication. 
So they'll put a medication on there because you're reporting the symptom and they wanna alleviate the symptom with the medication. So you also want to be careful to work with a coach, a good therapist, whoever you're working with to figure out how you can help the medication along so that you know you're accurately reporting your symptoms because that's kind of a dangerous path too. Psychiatry and everything I think in the mental health field is a collaborative effort. You know, I think that's what Josephine really has been driving home most of this interview is that you need a team. Everybody has to be kind of on the same page. We can't just say, oh, my psychiatrist prescribed me like eight medications and now I feel horrible and I'm having all these side effects. It happens, you know, I hope that it, you don't walk in day one and they give you eight medications. I would definitely suggest communicating better with your psychiatrist on that one. But it happens slowly over a period of time where these medications are added. So you just wanna be aware of what you're reporting. And then that leads into our next question of, can you ever get off medications? Yes, you definitely can. And I think when people become very attached to their medications, right? And so there's some cases where it's so clear that there is a clear benefit from a medication, right? And in those cases, you know, after a long period of time of stability, it's always dynamic, right? And so this idea of say you've been on an SSRI for 10 years, right? And it really helped you in the beginning and you continue to do well, and, but you've implemented so many other things in your life as kind of allowing for that stability. And so let's, I mean, if someone's like, no, I really do feel comfortable staying on this medication. I really think it's helpful. Fine. There's no known negative long-term consequences of being on certain medications, right? Um, with others, you know, there, it, it just depends on the medication. But I have other people who say, look, I've made all these positive sh shifts in my life. I've really hooked onto this therapy. It's been so helpful. I'm in a positive relationship. I don't know if I really need this medication anymore. And I think that's a very reasonable question. And it's not like you would one day be on and be off the other. What you would do is you would slowly go down, keeping an eye on like how you're doing, right? So let's say you have the dose. Okay, how are you doing at that dose? Are you doing okay? Have you kind of lived enough life to kind of challenge yourself to see how you're doing? And if the answer is yes, then maybe with your psychiatrist, you might say, okay, let's go down even more. And you know, you do it in a very conscientious way, kind of watching out to make sure that you don't have symptoms that kind of come up on a lower dose or off, but it can totally be done. I think it's important to know that, you know, some people really are like, I just don't want to be on any medications. And I totally understand and respect that desire. There are some people who just do better on medications. And so you have to understand that you might not be able to get off of them. And, you know, maybe that's okay. Maybe, and I think it's this idea of you have to figure out, okay, do you, would you rather be stable and on the meds or off the meds and have a little bit of instability? And maybe that's a personal call, right? Um, there are some people who get off and they're just fine. And so it really just depends on the case. It depends on how willing you are to kind of collaborate with your psychiatrist in the process of, of trying it. Um, and I, the other thing I wanted to mention is, I mean, there isn't a magic pill for everything either, right? And so I, when I start people on medications, I like to say, okay, what are your expectations for this medication, right? Because I like to know what they're, how they're thinking about it. And I often tell people, look, these medications are not gonna make you 100% better. I, my goal is to make you about 60 to 80% better. That would be success to me. And the rest of that 
from 60 or 80 to 100 is about the work that you are going to put into it, right? It's going to be the therapy. It's kind of working the things that really work for you. So it really is the stance between the medication and the therapy. And it's not just taking a pill every day that's going to kind of resolve everything. It's, it's really, it's a multifactorial process. That's so, that's so awesome that you bring it up because someone asked, how do psychiatrists choose as to when they will or won't change your meds when you're struggling? And I think you just answered that question, right? It's that you can be struggling again, especially with borderline personality disorder. You can be struggling every day, an hour before your session because you want to make sure that your psychiatrist sees your struggle and validates you but you, you don't need a med change every time you're struggling depending on your history. Is that pretty accurate? Right, right, and I think it, it really, I, it so depends, right? And so if you have a history of you struggle, but you, you can pull from these other sources to help you out of it, maybe it doesn't make sense to increase the medication, especially a medication that you're already having side effects to, right? And so I think there's this idea that yes, of course, I would imagine if I came into a psychiatrist's office and I'm like, I need to feel better and you have a pill that you might be able to give me to make me feel better. That's a reasonable request, right? But, you know, I think it's important to have that conversation. But what are, are there other ways that you can feel better? And what is the risk of taking, adding a medication? What is the risk of going up? And would that actually be net a net negative or not and so I think it really does depend but I totally get the um, kind of the feeling that could I just be given a pill and I think I could just feel better if, if I did that um, and that's where communication really and talking about what your expectations are and so if someone's like I often ask people at the end of the session I'm like does this feel okay what we're doing and some people say no I really wanted a medication I really wanted you to make a change and that is a really good conversation to have then right as to kind of understanding why yeah absolutely I mean communication setting expectations setting the outcome even if your psychiatrist is not asking you what do you expect of this medication this is you know this podcast serves as some information and different ideas that you can do to try to work on your relationship with your psychiatrist so you could go in there now having that information and think okay well what do i expect and do i want you should ask yourself do i want a magic wand today is that what I want? And I would love to give that to you all. Josephine would love to give that to you, to anyone with mental illness. It would be awesome if we could just wave a magic wand or give that one pill or that one thing, but we can't do that. So you just wanna be careful of asking your providers to do that because that can get into a really sticky situation um, for sure. Awesome, so the last thing I wanted to touch on is just metabolic syndrome. So can, do you give any, do you have any advice that you give to your clients who end up having metabolic syndrome? Do you suggest they see a nutritionist? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important just to kind of define what you're talking about. So you're basically talking about weight gain from medication. Exactly. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Okay, so there are some medications that are known for being weight gaining, right? But not all medications are known for that. Um, there are some medications that have that as a possible side effect. Um, the SSRIs are interesting. People always ask, maybe when I put something on Zoloft or someone on Lexapro, they say, oh, I have a friend who gained 20 pounds on it. I'm so worried about gaining weight on it. Um, and I say, you know, it's a possibility. These medications could potentially, you could gain weight on them. You could lose weight on them. Um, 
it's in, I mean, this is a little bit out of the realm of talking about, you know, borderline personality disorder. But if you think about the mechanism of some of these medications, if a medication decreases anxiety, it might actually decrease a restrictive nature you have with food, right? And so it may not be the medication making you eat more or making you gain weight. It might be that if you're feeling less anxious, you're less restrictive around your intake, right? And so that so you have to figure out kind of what is the mechanism of waking. And sometimes it's impossible to know, but it's it's an important thing to think about. Um, in terms of other medications like Zyprexa or Seroquel, yes, those for sure are weight gaining. Um, something like Topamax we sometimes use for irritability tends to actually decrease appetite a little bit. So it just depends on the case. Um, but in terms of thinking about nutritionists, yes, you should, I mean, if someone is willing to see a nutritionist, why not, right? I think is if it's really important just in general to understand your body and your intake and how you have your relationship with food. And I, there's a lot of different types of nutritionists out there. Um, but I think of course, if you, you know, seeing a nutritionist to, to really help you understand why you're craving things, understanding your cravings, understanding your habits. I mean, that could be very helpful, um, especially in the context of, I mean, let's say you're on a medication that's weight gaining, but it's really the only one that works. So you're kind of left, you're kind of in a difficult spot, right? And so there are other kind of ways to kind of help counteract that a little bit. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's a good point about anxiety. If you're not struggling as much, maybe you're more relaxed in that feeling of being relaxed as you eat more, right? And if you are on a medication, again, I think it really comes down to communication. So if you're taking Seroquel and that's the medication that does work for you and you know it's weight gaining and you've talked to your psychiatrist about that, if you start to see the weight gain, then you have a conversation about that and you try to talk about how to counteract that and then go and you know try to see a nutritionist versus I think waiting until you've gained so much weight and then going, oh my gosh, I gained all this weight. What do I do now? Right? Yeah, yeah it's, it's I mean, it's, it's a challenge of our profession that there are medications that are so helpful in some ways, but so harmful in other ways in terms of side effects. And, you know, that's, that's a struggle and it's, I get it. I mean, I wouldn't want to sign up for a medication that has weight gain it. Who would? Nobody would want that, right? But at the same time, it's this compromise of that, you know, it allows me to live my life in a better way. It's it's such a hard compromise to make. Yeah, absolutely. So just communicate with your treatment team. Have a created treatment team if you haven't done that already. It doesn't have to be therapist. It could be a coach. It doesn't have to be you know, anything that you can, you can have a, a group of people collaborating. I know a lot of people are into life coaching. I'm not just saying that because I'm a coach, but a lot of people are really into that. And I'm sure that Josephine would yeah. collaborate with a coach in the same way she would with a therapist. If that were the person that were drive, that was driving the positive change with the individual. So create a treatment team and communicate with them as best you can. And then try to remember that you're kind of watching your symptoms as you go and not over-reporting your struggling in this hyperbolic way because the psychiatrist is informed by your level of honesty, right? All right, that was awesome. Thank you so much, Josephine. It was so informative. Yeah, I, I, well, I love talking about this. It felt like we were only talking for 10 minutes. <laughs> but um, I think this podcast is such a great resource for people. And um, I tell people about it all the time. And I, I think it's, I'm glad it's out there for people. And your listeners are lucky to have this as a, as a something to, to use and educate themselves about borderline. So thank you.
Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Can you let everybody know where they can find you if they want to schedule with you or just kind of talk to you? Yeah, so um, I, my, our group practice is called Cal Psychiatry. Um, so you can just go to calpsychiatry.com and it has a lot of information about our clinicians and our specialties. And we have a lot of just information on there in general on our blog. And so, yeah. And I also have a podcast called Mind Stories if anybody's interested. it's a, um, I talk to different mental health providers just about their treatment specialties. And so Rose was on there last month and um, it was a good conversation too. Yeah, it absolutely was. And I'll put all of those links in the show notes, guys. So thank you so much, Josephine. Yeah, have a good day. You too. Bye. Are you currently struggling to stay afloat? Are you looking for more one-on-one support and guidance on your recovery journey? Check out thriveonlinecounseling.com. We offer mindset coaching that will propel your recovery journey forward. We help frustrated individuals, resentful couples, and disconnected families navigate through tough times. Have phone, video, or text sessions wherever you are. The best part? You can schedule right from our website. Choose the day and time that works best for you. Life can be better. We can help. Make an investment in yourself. You are worth it. So today, in place of the Q&A, I wanted to talk about tyranny. So I know I've talked about people with BPD in splitting episodes where they take their favorite host and kind of like suck them dry and just become really controlling and I've said that that's a problem and I've, you know, we've talked about ways to stop doing that. There's still this question of how that people keep bringing up and it really kind of ate away at me. I know a couple episodes ago I tried to answer someone's how. It was kind of eaten away at me because I'm thinking, what am I missing that I'm not able to convey and what element can I add to this sort of you know, method that I have of recovery that I have going on so that a lot more people can understand. So I think it's really important that I stop and say that our motivation for not being a tyrant anymore really matters. And a lot of us will start in the on this recovery journey. And even though we have a partner or a family member, someone close to us, we're not motivated to stop being a tyrant for them. We're motivated to stop being a tyrant so that they can tell us good job you stop being a tyrant so really it's for us again it's that selfish worldview so you really want to look at your motivation for change and the only way that you would stop being a tyrant is if you had so much love for the person that you're in relationship with that that drives your recovery that drives your want or need to not be a tyrant the people that i've spoken with that have the most success in the how is that they truly love the people that they are with and they would really sacrifice their whole life for those people because they love them that much And they love them because maybe that person was honest with them or they felt safe with them or they're secure with them, but they just love them. 
So when they come and see coaching or they listen to the podcast about tyranny, they think, they really think like, wow, I hurt someone that deeply. And that is huge in terms of motivation. The how is I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to wake up tomorrow. And when I feel like I want to explode on this person, I'm going to take a time out. I'm going to walk away no matter how much I don't want to and how defiant and angry I feel and how much I just want them to hear me. I'm just going to walk away. And they actually wake up and they just walk away because they do have control and they all acknowledge it and they accept it. If you still believe that you have no control over yourself in the middle of an episode, I want you to start there because that is simply not true. When you become completely emotionally dysregulated, you absolutely lose all control. But that's not what I'm encouraging folks to wait for. You don't want to wait until you're so dysregulated that there, you know, you don't know what to do next, right? So what I am encouraging that you all do is take, take a moment to figure out where's that itch coming from? When does it start? And if you don't know what I mean, you know how you're hanging out at home and like, Maybe you're hanging out with your, your, your partner and you guys are supposed to be, you have a mission of cleaning something together and your partner goes about this mission and you can feel yourself like an, an, an agitation or anxiety bubble building because they are just cleaning the wrong way. They're not doing it the right way. They're not doing it the way you want them to do it. And that bubble of agitation rises and rises because you're having this internal battle with yourself you know that you shouldn't have this battle you know that you should just not say anything let them do their thing but yet you haven't mastered your emotions so the bubbles rising and rising and rising until all of a sudden you're like don't put that there (laughs) why are you doing that and you start exploding at the person or maybe you just shut down and you just start being passive aggressive don't say a lot maybe you cry And you start making up all these stories in your head of why you're crying. You know, these are all things that happen when you're completely dysregulated. But there are steps that occur prior to that. So you feel like you don't have control because you don't recognize the steps prior. That's what it is. I 100% validate that. When we are emotionally dysregulated, when we've gone from 0 to 60... And haven't been able to catch ourselves at 58 and 40. Then yeah, we lose control at 60. That's the definition of being completely dysregulated, right? But what I'm saying to to do with the how is to find that itch. If you think about it, you start getting a little upset. You're a little nervous about something. Little things keep happening. You're fighting to keep it in. You're fighting to keep it in. And all of a sudden bam it explodes you can't control yourself at the bam explosion but there are minutes and seconds that are really valuable leading up to that moment of explosion that i need you to find find them that's the how i'm my son plays sports he's 11 he he plays football and he plays basketball and he is always my husband's always talking about like look for the opening so when we play basketball He's like, look for the opening, look for the passing lane, look for the opening, you know, and go to the basket. 
And he says that there's like split seconds or moments where you make decisions to, you know, that are game changing moments. So I am telling you that it is, it takes looking at what happens before when that emotional itch starts charging up and revving up. And then you have to look for your opening. When can you, you know, move to the basket and score? When can you throw that pass before the quarterback sacks you? At what moment can you do that? And that's your how. And in that moment when you find it, first you have to find it. First you have to submit to the fact or just accept the fact that your emotions don't just come out of nowhere. There's a little itch. And sometimes it's just teeny. You have to find it and scratch it. So that's your how. I want to hear from people out there. If that makes sense to them and they can find that itch and they can find that split opening, I want to hear from them. I want to have people come on that are trying to figure out certain parts of what I'm saying. When they have this moment and you have this eureka moment, I want you to send that. Send me an email. Call me. I want to have you on the show. What I'm realizing is that what I'm the information that I'm giving to you is something that you're taking as an audience and you're just killing it, running with it, finding your own ways to twist and turn through this these paths of recovery that would reach other people. So together, if you've had a moment where you're like, oh, Rose said this and this is what I did with it and it really worked, or Rose that said this but it didn't make a lot of sense, I started investigating what this did. Those kinds of conversations and the success stories are truly valued in this community. So if you have one, let us know. I want to hear your how. Any success, I want to hear it and I want to share it with everyone so that we can get this question of how debunked and figured out. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Okay, thanks for listening. That was from Borderline and Beautiful, a production of Thrive Mind Body LLC, online coaching that helps frustrated individuals, resentful couples, and disconnected families navigate through tough times. Visit us on the web at thriveonlinecounseling.com. If you like this show, remember, you can hear it on Anchor or Apple Podcasts or Pocket Casts or any app that you use to listen to podcasts. Subscribe to get a new episode every Monday. If you want to get in touch, you can leave me a voice message. Some of you had some comments and questions from the last episodes, and I'd love to hear whatever questions you have, too. Just download the Anchor mobile app, search for From Borderline to Beautiful, and tap the message button to send me a voice message. We'll have all those links in the show description. Okay, we made it. Thanks again for listening. I'm Rose Skeeters, and I'll be back next week with another episode of From Borderline to Beautiful. Talk to you then.